So this morning, I want to give the last talk in a sequence of uh, five talks on the theme of getting down to direct experience. We've been looking at that theme in a lot of different ways, and today I want to, again, give a, a very, very brief review, particularly for those who, are, who have not been at any of the other four sessions, and particularly focus on the theme which I started looking at last time, which is that in the context of our practice, where in many ways the intention is to get closer to the direct experience of emotions, the body, thoughts, a sense of the flow of impermanence, to really be close to the origins of happiness and suffering, and to look at experience in a very direct and basic way, which we, was our focus, especially the first three talks, how, in the, in the context of that practice, do we work with thinking and with having views, stories, narratives, interpretations, which in some ways moves us away from direct experience. In other words, how can we be skillful with our thinking? How can we be skillful and wise with thinking? How should we think about thinking, <laughs> in other words? I'm just wondering, how many of you have been to uh, one or more of the sessions on getting down to direct experience? And how, for how many is this your first time to one of these sessions? Okay, so that's helpful. About, about a quarter, maybe. So the so first, a brief review, and then looking at some aspects of how we can practice skillfully with, with thinking, with views. And my aim is, since there is, wasn't, was um, an invitation to look at our own experience uh, and see how we may have practiced ourselves in the last week with views, stories, interpretations, I want to leave more time open for discussion and questions this time. So I may, I may be a little briefer than before. I have, there's a lot of material. It's, a very, it's actually quite a vast topic to explore. So I'll be, I'll be brief and try to, to try to look at highlights. The motivation to talk about getting down to direct experience is in offering a very practical and I think accessible way to understand and to explore some of the actually quite profound teachings from spiritual traditions in general, but particularly Buddhist traditions, because looking at how we are either more directly with experience or how we move away from experience, particularly with concepts, stories, interpretations, uh, particularly when driven by what we can call reactivity, that is a kind of grasping or pushing away, Seeing how we do that gives a very, very accessible way to understand the nature of confusion, of ignorance, the roots of suffering, um, how we get caught in a kind of virtual reality and don't really encounter life so directly, and can suggest some very simple basic practices that we can connect with our everyday lives, as well as that can inform our retreat practice. So to me, this is almost the, uh, it's, it's a wonderful theme because it is both accessible and offers depth, which is wonderful in terms of our practice. You know, sometimes we get accessibility, but it's relatively superficial, <laughs> and sometimes we get profundity but it's relatively inaccessible, particularly when, <laughs> when you get into theories or saying, you wouldn't really understand this unless you do a retreat for about three years, <laughs> you know, which is, is that helpful? I don't know. I don't think so. So, so it's, it's how can we have, how can we really access some of these deeper teachings? I think this approach can get at that. Actually working with it and moving to those depths does take practice and commitment, no way around that. 
but it's accessible, it's something we can look at in the context of our daily lives. It's a way to unpack the nature particularly of confusion and ignorance. And as I mentioned, the claim of that's behind our practice is that the core problem is ignorance or delusion. And that ultimately we are in our nature capable of overcoming that delusion and ignorance and coming to knowledge. This is the core really claim. It's really optimistic in a way to say that the, the basic problem is ignorance and that there are ways to um, transform that rather than the problem of life being that of evil or certain people who are bad, who are out there, sort of that there's some sort of metaphysical divide between the good and the bad. Here it's saying that a way to understand even some of the horrible things that happen in the world through ignorance gives essentially an optimistic view, a view that could be connected with some sense that there's a potential for both personal and collective evolution. I used a model which is in the handout, which for me gives a nice image of moving uh, more towards more direct experience or away from direct experience. And it's the model called the Ladder of Inference, uh, developed by Chris Argeris at the uh, Harvard Business School. And this, again, a simple model that for me is hel- a helpful metaphor of, and I've, it wasn't developed in the context of mindfulness practice, but more in the context of organizational life and the importance of really being aware of the constructions of one's interpretations, narratives, stories, inferences, conclusions, assumptions, beliefs, etc. And really tracking those and seeing how they, they are developed uh, on the basis of there being this infinite pool of data or experiences and then we naturally select out certain, um, certain parts of the potential pool of data. Like right now, most of you are listening to me, you're selecting to listen to my words rather than daydream or look out the window, although sometimes if you know, a, a wonderful deer comes, I, all the heads <laughs> <laughs> go towards the window and I'm sitting here talking and say, <laughs> you know, you know, maybe I should look also and just have a collective pause. But, but uh, we, we, we select out and then maybe on the basis of that selection we create meanings with, oh, beautiful deer. You know, that's a kind of a making of meaning. You know, and then we may go further, that may take us further. We may say, I should, um, I should just go out in the forest after the class today and, and spend time with some deer. You might have that thought or, or, you know, you could say, no, but I should go camping. You know, and you could say, when should I go camping? Um, Maybe next weekend. Well, I'll have to check with X. No, maybe the following weekend. And by then, as we saw the other two weeks, you've missed the major discussion of how one goes up the ladder of inference. in any case, so, so we do that and what's the reason that that's important is that it gives a visual image of what uh, that can really uh, correspond to our practice, that the, uh, the essence of our practice is particularly to be with the direct experience of emotions, the body, to be closer to that, to that direct flow where we notice impermanence, where we notice the origins of suffering where we look more carefully at the nature of self and the constructions of self. And we get more down to, to more direct experience. And then we see how we sometimes go into interpretations, how we uh, have inferences and so forth. And the particular contribution, I think, of the meditation practice and the Buddhist teachings is to see the link between how we often go away from direct experience uh, and reactivity. How when there's some confusion or suffering or uh, wanting more clarity or lack of coherence, 
that we sometimes we fill in, sometimes quite prematurely and sometimes on the basis of fear or grasping or anger or confusion, we go up the ladder. It's very, very clear whenever there's tension between people or there's a conflict. You know, the essence of conflicts is that people on both sides go up the ladders, get caught in views, positions, ideologies, and so forth. And there can actually be much communication between them because it's essentially like how do you communicate between two positions? There may not be very much uh, communication possible when people are at the level of a position. And so a mediator or a skillful person working with conflict would try to bring people down the ladder towards the direct experience. You know, so much of conflict is driven by a painful experience. So a skillful mediator would try to let each side go down the ladder of inference to and often to experience, oh, that was really painful what happened. You know, so I'm sure we do this all the time with people we love that when we have a conflict, it's very healing often and helpful to not to go into the position, you did that for the 13th time, or why can't you get your act together? Those, that's up the ladder, and we try to go down and say, oh, when this happened, I felt scared, and I was wondering what you were thinking, and I interpreted it in this way, and I went with this interpretation, and it was scary, and, but I kept on doing it, I kind of got locked into that interpretation. And if two people do something like that with each other or two sides in a conflict, it can be tremendously healing. And it's really about going down the ladder because that's really where empathy and compassion arise. And in a sense, that's really what permits connection. Sometimes when we go up the ladder, there can be tendencies towards disconnection and polarization. I think not necessarily because we could also go up the ladder and have agreement. Sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons. People, you know, in political movements driven by fear go up the ladder and there's bonding around the fear and around, or around scapegoating. So people can go up the ladder and it can be a way to connect, but for maybe for the wrong reasons. So it's one way to understand what happens in political movements or social movements um, driven by fear, you know, which is very common. I remember there was a, a really a pioneering book done which studied the Nazis by the great psychologist Eric Fromm. And it, the, book, the title of the book was Escape from Freedom. His sense was that people who were influenced or joined the Nazis gave up something of their freedom to, as it were, go up the ladder and join in an ideology that gave away their own autonomy and their own really direct personal relationship to their experience. So that is something we see individually and particularly, we can study it when there's a difference. I mean, some of these dynamics get quite clear when there's a conflict that, that is not skillfully handled. So that was, that was the model. And we, we saw how that model really can guide our practice, how we try, in the instructions for mindfulness, we try to really learn to be present with the emotions, with the thought, really notice thoughts closer to their origins. That's what we do in our practice. We sit, we notice how thoughts arise closer to their origin rather than after having thought into a loop for 30 minutes. That's what our practice is about. We learn to be with the body. We learn to be with the emotions. We learn to notice in particular the sense of something being pleasant or unpleasant, which is quite key to all of this because often when there's a sense, I don't like this, we go up the ladder. That's what we call reactivity. I don't like this, let me get rid of this. What that person said is awful, let me go up the ladder. And we learn how to stay down the ladder. Famous phrase from from the teachings of the Buddha, in the seeing, only the seeing. In the heard, only the heard. You know, in the felt, only the felt. That's what our training is. Again, it's not to say that we don't want to sometimes go up the ladder. We need to do that in a number of circumstances. Um, But we want to know when we're up there and we want to have the capability to go to be more and more with direct experience. So that's, that's the model. We also explored how some of the ways we go up the ladder are driven 
by chronic unconscious patterns. Much of what in Western psychology is called the unconscious locks us into almost unconscious beliefs which are way up the ladder. They're out of connection with direct experience. I gave the example of someone who might have a chronic belief that being anger is bad based on early conditioning in the family where one was told not to be angry and that person may have almost an unconscious belief, anger is bad, get rid of it for oneself, for others, and that can drive behavior. That we would call a more unconscious, that's a, that's a less accessible uh, belief or story. A lot of the practice that we do in, uh, helps us even to uncover those more unconscious patterns. And there's also the unconscious, relatively unconscious set of patterns that are pointed to in Buddhist practice particularly, our views about permanence, about um, the, of how it's uh, almost an unconscious belief that I can gain happiness by grabbing after what's pleasant or by pushing away what's unpleasant. It's almost an unconscious belief, you know. Next time you have apple pie, check it out. <laughs> you know. And nothing wrong with apple pie, but it's something to study. It's something to study. How much do we have these unconscious beliefs in which we believe that uh, I'm permanent, I will last forever, happiness comes from reaching out and grabbing and making as permanent as possible what I want. How much do we have those beliefs? So in practice it's pointed out that those may also be less conscious beliefs which organize our experience and yet we're hardly aware of them. Well, all of this we explore in our practice and it's accessible ultimately. So again, very optimistic view. These, it's helpful in the practice to point out these are some of the structures of confusion, delusion, and ignorance that we all share. And yet we can, working with models like the model, the ladder of inference, working with the notions of coming back to more direct experience, we can actually have a very down-to-earth and practical sense of what it means to see where we go up the ladder, get confused, live in a virtual reality, and so forth. We know that. You know, we know that we get into um, what used to be called tape loops. I don't know what the digital counterpart of a tape loop is, but yeah, I guess. Um, but you know what I mean. We get in these tape loops, and we uh, we repeat ourselves. We have chronic patterns, and when we see those more clearly, as we do in mindfulness, it's both humbling but also we can be optimistic because in the seeing is ultimately the transformation. The, the seeds of the transformation are there. So then the question, given that as the aim of practice, which was the focus of the first three talks, how do we then act skillfully when we necessarily, as we often do, go up the ladder, when we use concepts, when we develop thoughts, when we have inferences, conclusions, stories, narrative, assumptions, theories, um, and uh, whole-scale approaches to life that that have, we might say, a more theoretical basis. And so I I wanted to take the rest of the time to continue where I was last time and to talk about some ways in general to work with thinking and views. And I'll, I'll bring in new material on that. So I mentioned that this can be very confusing for people doing Buddhist practice because we may have the assumption that thinking is the enemy. The aim of practice is to still the mind. You know, and sometimes it even says, I remember it in, in the uh, Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which is more, we would say now, a Hindu text, it says that the aim of meditation is to still the movement of the mind. And Indeed, in our practice, one of the types of practice, which we could call more concentration practice, the aim is to bring thinking more or less to a stop and the movements of the mind. And so we might think, is, you know, what's thinking is a problem? What's the, why should we worry about thinking? Shouldn't we just more or less get rid of it? And sometimes with the emphasis on meditation, that's been there in the Western 
development of Buddhist tradition, we can also have that confusion. Generally speaking, in the West, we've had a very, very strong emphasis on meditation and less of a strong emphasis on ethics and wisdom. Traditionally, the three of those are the pillars of training. Those are identified as the three aspects of training. And yet we've primarily focused on meditation. When you get into the areas of ethics and wisdom, the importance, we might say, of the skillful, active mind is more apparent. And yet it's relatively, relatively speaking, we give much more attention to meditation. And so that can also be confusing. We can read certain texts and think that thinking is a problem. Here is from the uh, third uh, great Zen teacher, her Zen ancestor, named Sengstan. I think this is about the ninth century. Listen to these words. They, could, they point to a certain truth of practice, but they also could be misunderstood. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. The more you talk about it, the further astray you wander from the truth. Stop thinking and talking, and there is nothing you will not be able to know. Do not search for the truth. Only cease to cherish opinions. So that can be confusing, right? This beautiful, inspiring passage. Uh, And yet, how do we understand the importance of both what that's pointing to, which I think does point to a way of being, maybe at very deep levels of practice, where the mind is very, very still, and we're more with that direct experience. But it could be confusing to us if we ask, okay, how do I act skillfully in the realm of thinking, right? If I, you know, the more you talk and think about it, the further you stray from the truth. Stop talking and thinking, and there is nothing you will not be able to know. So that could be confusing, right? (laughs) The, the key, I think, is in the last word, the last phrase, only cease to cherish opinion. You know, I don't know what the translation was, but the cherish refers, I think, to, it seems connected with what we talk about as attachment to views. So the problem ultimately is not going to be working with thinking or having thinking or having narratives. It's when we get attached to them, when we become fixated, when they become part of our mechanisms of what of, of part of our defense mechanisms or part of the ways that we are unconscious and react and maybe use interpretations and theories as hammers to win an argument or to beat others or whatever. That's ultimately going to be the problem. So how do we work skillfully? Now that you've become confused, <laughs> how might we think skillfully about how to use thinking skillfully? So, I gave a few guidelines last time, and I'll repeat those briefly. The first is, and I'm going to be giving what to me are several guidelines and some practices for working skillfully with thinking. The first is, let the thinking be connected with direct experience. Be careful when your thinking, your interpretations become way high up on the ladder, and you don't know the relationship between that and your direct experience of an emotion, of the direct experience of the body, something that happened, and so forth, to really be able to make those connections. Um, And particularly, to be aware of when one's thinking, and I'll come back to this in more detail, when one's thinking is driven by reactivity. That's going to be a key. And we talked about that last time as noticing when there's a charge around an idea, a view, an opinion. When you're in dialogue with someone else and someone has a different view, and all of a sudden the body gets a little tense, one gets excited, one feels that one's 
uh, well-being depends on defeating this other person's opinion. That is a good sign of reactivity, or it almost is reactivity. You know, and we, and again, I think for me, when I look at a lot of political discourse, I see that driven by reactivity. Sometimes because people can't actually talk about some of the more direct experiences, very, very common. They're out of touch with one's fear or anxiety, and so we, our thought goes into a certain realm. So how can we, how can we do that? We can practice, we can really try to notice. You know, one technique that's very, very helpful is when you're meditating and you notice a repetitive thought, and repetition is a, is a real clue to when there's reactivity. You notice uh, the repetition, you're thinking something happened and the mind just goes over it again and again, very common. What a very helpful technique is, that's, that's really directly about going further down the ladder, is shift your attention from the verbal level to what's happening in your body and your heart. Actually, concretely shift the attention to the heart and just stay there. Shift the attention to the sensations around the heart area, move away from the verbal level and just hang out there for a while. You know, and sometimes we'll get a sense of what's driving the thinking that we weren't aware of before. It's a very, very helpful technique. Have repetitive thinking about anything that's bothering you or you're preoccupied. Shift the attention down to the body and the, the heart, the emotional area. It can be very, very helpful. Um, notice, again, uh, if I'm caught in a story. Try to have mindfulness that can identify I'm in a difficult encounter with someone, what's the story I'm telling myself? Or I start having, again, a lot of repetitive thoughts, what's the story I'm telling myself? Very, very crucial. Again, in the, in the social area, uh, what's been really beautiful about getting to know and work with Joanna Macy, who some of you know her work, is that she's developed methods that one can go from views or narratives that one has about the social realm and develop ways to actually see what the emotions and the feelings and the challenges are on a more direct level. You know, with the work that she calls um, coming back to life that she used to call despair and empowerment work offers a beautiful group way of actually doing that. It's kind of the equivalent of therapy. In therapy one might also do that. You have some chronic problem uh, with relationships or this relationship or some issue and, some, and you have, maybe have self-judgmental thoughts. Sometimes one can work with that and this is what I do when I do a lot of work with the judgmental mind is we try to go beneath the judgment and see what's driving it. Often it's some unacknowledged or unprocessed painful experience. Unprocessed pain drives a lot of repetitive thinking. And part of what happens with meditation or psychotherapy is we can actually go into that direct experience and touch some of the roots of the repetitive thinking or of the chronic patterns and they get transformed and there's healing. I think most of us probably know that from, from in different ways. So the first, the first guideline is connect, see if you can connect your thinking with direct experience, with more direct experience, particularly the thinking that may be problematic or repetitive and so forth. The second is develop a, an approach to thinking in which thinking is really a tool of practice rather than the ultimate truth. I think this is really pointed to in the classical teachings of the Buddha where the whole approach to views, teachings, even Buddhist teachings, is pragmatic. They are, as it were, skillful means to help us transform rather than some absolute truth to have beliefs about that we get in wars with other people about. So to have the view that thinking is a mean, more a means to an end and to have a really practical sense of thinking. And I, I, uh, talked about uh, the famous parable of the raft where the Buddha says, my teachings are 
like a raft that help you get to the other shore. When you get there, don't carry the raft on your back and walk around on the island where you've gone to and carry the raft around. Another, another image is that of the um, person who's been shot by a poison arrow. And the Buddha says, if that person asked the question, who shot the arrow? What, was, what kind of arrow was it? What kind of, uh, what kind of feathers were on the arrow? Was the person who shot it tall? Where did the person come from? He said, if that person keeps on asking all those questions and trying to acquire that kind of knowledge, that person will die. The point is to, to do what's necessary, especially to take the arrow out. So it really points to that, that pragmatic function of views. And it's really, it's really quite interesting how in the spiritual realm, views can get out of hand and we can go way up the ladder. There's a, a interesting story Jack Kornfield tells about um, a well-known teacher, I believe, I think I'm getting this story right, who, who died or, or a kind of beloved person died. And the wife, of course, was very sad, but it became confusing because people started coming to her and saying, I saw your husband in my dreams. He is in the Buddha's heavenly realm and is doing quite fine. <laughs> you know, another person had a dream illustrating some other belief. And a third person said, I have a strong intuition that your husband is hovering around and maybe there's some unfinished business. And people were just having these, all these different views. And the, the, the wife got very, very confused. And, you know, it's like, so we can, you know, I don't, it's a question of how much are those, how much do we get attached to certain views and how much is, what do we really know sometimes? That was Jack's point in that example. He was saying, how much was that people going outside of the area where they really have firm knowledge, letting their imagination take them away? Hard to know sometimes. Interesting that the, <clears throat> the emphasis in the Buddhist tradition was really about being really careful about being attached to any kind of dogmatic view. And historically, it's been one of the great uh, glories, I think, of, that, of this tradition, that there hasn't been an emphasis on dogmatic belief, and rather the opposite, that be very careful where one gets has fixed views, where one has fixed positions, to see views of any kind, uh, whether they're spiritual views or political views, or the views about how to uh, run an organization or how to have a meeting, to take those and see, am I getting, am I, are my views becoming fixed? I talked about the importance of looking for reactivity around views, looking for where there might be that sense of fixation and, and to actually track one's experience. When am I charged? When am I charged about what someone else says? And I gave the story last time of uh, how I was very influenced being in a group of supposedly wise philosophers when the wise philosophers seemed to show that they were getting fixated about their own views and someone in the group said, Let's do the practice of whenever you notice a fixation or a charge around view, take it as a starting point for inquiry rather than a starting point for war. And I have used that practice and found it really beneficial. Notice a charge, a fixation around view, let it be a starting point for inquiry. Why am I so uh, attached to this view? Why is there so much of a charge? What's there for me? Might I learn something from this person? Why do I feel I have to defeat that other view? It doesn't mean to give up one's view, but the whole aim is to be able to use views, stories, narratives without so much fixation or grasping, and to really connect it ultimately with compassionate action and wise, wise choice. One of the implications of all this for me, particularly for our time that's helpful, it, it, it's related to what I said earlier that I think is a very helpful uh, way to approach thinking 
is to see if we can connect our thinking with our emotions and our bodies and to have a sense of integration of myself as an integrated person where my thoughts are connected with my emotions and can be in a sense rooted in my lived experience of the body. This goes against quite a few hundreds or even thousands of years of Western conditioning where particularly nowadays we tend to think that the thinking is or should be disconnected from emotions, right? That the best thinking is cool, disconnected from emotions. And that all of this leaves the body behind. So we go to a kind of thinking sometimes in our culture becomes a kind of uh, participation in a virtual reality in which we're all sitting by computers texting each other or, or uh, in which we, we are not so connected with experience or the body. So some of what can be helpful is to really approach having one's thinking really be grounded, we might say, in the heart. I think for, for me this is something that can guide our practice. In the context of our practice, this means let my wisdom, my development of wise thinking, be influenced by metta, by compassion. Sometimes they can appear different. You know, my mindfulness can be disconnected from metta, or we may, I may be, I'm into the wisdom aspect. Metta is for softies, you know, or vice versa. You know, I'm really into the heart. I don't want to have clear thinking. Clear thinking is oppressive, right? And, you know, some of us, and I think there are cultural tendencies to have these get split off. So I think one of, for me, what, what is very helpful about doing a lot of meta practice and also having a lot of emphasis on wisdom is they start to get integrated and then we can also connect that further with being embodied. I think the direction is towards having the embodied wise heart, I might say. You know, so that, that's something else to look at. And, you know, concretely, I think that means really developing in wisdom, developing in the open heart, developing in a sense of really being able to be embodied, and those will tend to integrate. I think this is what our culture deeply, deeply needs, is almost like a vision of what a mature human being is as integrating body, heart, and mind, and spirit, we might say. And so that could be unpacked in a lot more detail. But that, for me, is one of the horizons for working skillfully with, with thinking. I think I'll just end by making one further point, and then we can open this up. That part of this is also to be aware, this is bringing in more of the wisdom dimension, to be aware of the limitations of concepts, views, and theories. To know that, and this is something we explore when we meditate, and when the mind gets very quiet, my mind might be quiet, my conceptual mind will look at this and say glass, and will stay on a conceptual level where I'm, a, I'm looking at objects. When I'm with more direct experience, I tend to be more with a very quickly moving, fluctuating sense of different senses in action. And I begin to see that glass is a simplification of experience, or tree is a simplification of experience, that concepts are primarily there in human life for pragmatic reasons. So we can communicate with each other, so we can um, say things like, um, this is a nice glass, <laughs> or look at that tree but that when we actually get more close to direct experience, there's much more of a moving, fluctuating uh, set of sense experiences in which glass appears to be an imposition on that experience, made for valid reasons. And so part of what happens when we look more deeply is we get a sense of that. Concepts are limited. You know, concepts are, uh, they often come in pairs, they imply some kind of uh, solidity and permanence where in our experience we don't always see that. When, we're really, when the mind is really quiet and looking at a glass or a tree, we may see something uh, quite different. Uh, we also can see 
how so many concepts are organized as dualities, hot and cold, good and bad, winner and loser, and so forth, and that the reality of experience may actually be much more complex and ambiguous. And there's this, we can see how we're almost, um, the philosopher Wittgenstein had a phrase, bewitched by language. How we're almost, um, we, and if we, if we haven't really looked with the wisdom eyes carefully at the very nature of language and concepts, we tend to buy into them and we tend to, that can lead to suffering. I wanted to give one, just one example of that to close. This is actually is from the uh, Caring Bridge page for Eugene Cash. This was something from about a week ago where uh, Eugene's wife, uh, Pam Weiss, who teaches here often, um, just said what she was experiencing and talked about how the lived experience of being with a very difficult medical situation and coming home and just all the rush of different experiences led her to reflect further on the limitations of all the possible concepts that could describe it and how she would get caught in, okay, is it this way? People ask you, how is he doing? Is it this way? Is it that way? And she would say, actually, the words fail me. There's something more, um, what, some more rich happening. And the word, and sometimes the words are, are not really adequate. And she reflected on that just in this very, very down-to-earth situation. So I want to end with this uh, in, in terms of that, that wisdom teaching. This is an uh, entry called Weird. Eugene is slowly piercing his life together little by little. He says it is weird. And it is weird. Also beautiful, frustrating, overwhelming, poignant, and painful. He needs and is getting lots of rest, after five weeks in various hospitals getting very little. We are doing active home rehab, reorienting him to basic tasks, doing dishes, listening to voicemail, shaving, showering, watching TV, and also daily walks in the park, which include up and down our 40 stairs. On the one hand, watching him reorganize at home is astonishing. He is improving at a tremendous pace in leaps and bounds, and at the same time, is an incredibly slow, lots of forward and back, up and down, highs and lows. Hard to describe and perhaps hard to imagine that both things are equally true. This is one of the powerful insights the past five weeks have brought. Life is not one way or the other. It doesn't unfold in the neat this or that packages that our minds create. It is, in its immediacy, it is the pure dynamic flow of all of it. Everything arising simultaneously an amazing, miraculous, and yes, weird display. Let's just sit for a moment. We have some time for discussion or questions. I think this time we were going to use the handheld mic to both for the recording and so we can hear each other better. If we have any comments or questions or reports from how was your study of uh, views or attachment to views, working with uh, views in the last week. Any, any reflections or comments? questions about anything I said <laughs> or, or, or didn't say, that, please. And if you can say your name, that's, that's helpful too. Excuse me? Okay. My name is Joan and I w tried to track mainly um, when I was with other people yeah. as they go up the ladder yeah. and then how does that affect me? And I found that when I was getting uh, reactive and charged, 
I had to do something so I could see them and hear them and try to take in what they were saying. And so <laughs> mentally, I just took my fist and just decked them. And <laughs> that was a release for me. And then I could reground myself. I had to do something kind of violent like that to get myself out of that agitated s space. And I guess my question is, what happened? <laughs> Is, is, that a, is that a, a, a good tool? Is it not a good tool? Or <laughs> It worked for me. <laughs> did, did you say that uh, you decked the person or you decked the idea? Uh, no, in my mind, oh. I just powed him. Oh. And I think you used <laughs> a, a few <laughs> weeks... I, I wasn't sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think a few weeks ago you used yeah. uh, the word ouch. Yeah. And that didn't work for me. Yeah. I had to really punch him out. Yeah. And were you here for the renewal of the ethical precepts? <laughs> yeah, it's um, second Wednesday, every 8 a.m. <laughs> um, I don't know, that's a little bit like the therapeutic tool of hitting your pillow, or you know, a little bit like that, maybe. Um, I think, you know, um, I would want to be very careful with that technique. Um, and especially that it doesn't train us to do the real thing. Um, so, um, it conceivably, in a certain context, something like that could be helpful. I've sometimes myself, in working with anger, have found external expression useful when it was clearly not directed to the person. There also are a lot of other tools that are helpful to use that, the, that one has to be careful with that because one doesn't, we don't want to, as it were, strengthen the anger or the self-righteousness or the um, sense of this is, uh, I'm right or this is the correct view and so forth. So it's, kind of, it's a little bit of a dangerous technique. And there are other approaches that you, you could um, really feel the anger, sit with it, be with it. That would be another uh, way to work with it. To, um, you know, one tool we sometimes use is to imagine a wise person come into that situation, take over your body, and visualize what that wise person would do. That's a very, very helpful technique and uh, might, be another, might be another kind of action. Um, so it is, you know, it, um, one comment I made a few times ago is that when we actually use this model of the ladder and notice how many people are so often up the ladder, it can be a little bit sobering or even scary to notice that. And, and so, yeah, just to be aware of that, that that sometimes comes with the territory of seeing that more. Uh, but again, for you probably to, to go down, see if you can go down the ladder, more or less. The, the uh, image of punching is, um, see if you can connect down the ladder with that anger, certainly, yeah. So a lot more could be said, but that, that's, that's what comes to mind. Does that help? Yes, oh. very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Please. Is it? Let's use the, yes, use the <laughs> mic. Yeah. I have to think a minute about how I want to ask this. Well, I have a situation. I'll just give you the situation. Um, there's a person in my life who quite often behaves outrageously in a way that makes, you know, allows me a lot of practice for my Buddhist practice. Yeah. And, and so, and right now she's um, got a tumor in her lung. Mm -hmm. 
mm. and is awaiting diagnosis. Mm. And so most of the time, especially now, I try and use my practice <laughs> and try and behave in a wise way. Yeah. But I, I have reactive thoughts and feelings, yeah. and I feel them in my body and in my heart. And, yeah. and so I wonder if you're, if you're behaving in a way that's not congruent with what you're feeling, what are you doing? I mean, I don't want to be, I don't want to behave congruently with my yeah. feelings. That wouldn't work. Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of similar to, to your question, uh, and I, I won't repeat the question because I think that should go on the recording with that, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And every, everyone heard it, okay? So, um, a few things occur to me. There's a tremendous value in taking our difficult interactions and difficult encounters as starting points for learning and for inquiry and for saying, all right, this is my practice. This is an edge of my practice, rather than saying, this is a curse. You know, I wish this person wasn't in my life. And sometimes we can choose to not have the person in our lives. But if that person is there for, and is going to stay there, like in the case of family or maybe someone at work that no one's going anywhere, um, to say, <clears throat> let me take this difficult person as um, giving me an opportunity to grow and learn and be stretched. Because the fact that it's difficult means that we don't have it together with this person in some way, or that we're, uh, we don't know what to do, or that we become reactive. So that can be actually quite um, powerful. Just, it's really going against the common conditioning is to say, uh, this person is a problem. He or she should get it together. Stop acting outrageously. Then my life would be okay. You know, and it's that person's fault. We externalize the uh, blame, as it were. And so when we make it practice, we start saying, that person may well bear a lot of responsibility. And yet I can take responsibility for my reactivity, even if it's triggered by outrageous behavior. I can take responsibility for my reactivity, my comments, and, and really say, let me work with this. And it's really challenging, you know, and it can call forth depths of practice. It can call for depths of metta, compassion practice, forgiveness, uh, watching one's mind, noticing the stories you tell, and watching that over and over again. It can be quite humbling to do that. So that's one thing. Secondly, to work up to the difficult people, sometimes we have to work with the difficult people who are uh, uh, more um, lower down on the scale of difficulty and give attention to that. So notice you can train for the really difficult people by working with the mildly difficult people. And so, so to do that, and then in terms of the congruence question of if I'm feeling angry, should my behavior be angry? No. No. Is that, am, I, am I missing something there? No, that's, that's what, I mean, I didn't, I don't think it should be. Yeah. But I'm, I guess in terms of put, practice, put your, the, put that closer. in terms of practice, I just, um, So you just do the wise thing, even though, I guess I, I, I'm feeling like uh, if I do the wise thing, I'm somehow being... Um, inauthentic? Inauthentic, yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah I, think, I think we have here Buddhist practice coming up against expressive Western psychotherapy. <laughs> <laughs> Just let it out. <laughs> Don't worry about what the other person's experience is. Just let it out. You will have a cathartic experience and be healed. And, and caricaturing. But in terms of yeah. Buddha's practice, yeah. I guess then, I'm fumbling around here, but then I guess then really the wise thing to do 
is not worry about what you're feeling. I mean, work with it, yes, but do the wise thing. Do, do the wise thing. Sometimes that means, <clears throat> basically, if you're balanced, uh, sometimes it's skillful to, you know, if you're unbalanced, meaning reactive, meaning if you're under the sway of reactivity connected with a strong emotion, it's usually better to not do anything. And uh, sometimes you can say, I'm feeling reactive. You can be authentic in that way. But it's not, it's not usually helpful just to express one's reactivity in an unconscious way. And so it's, one can be skillful and say, I'm feeling really reactive, I'm feeling really angry, could we come back and talk about it? Depends on the relationship. Some relationships that would be work, some it wouldn't. But to, um, yeah, to know what you're feeling and then ask what's the wise thing to do. Like, I think that's what, where you were going with that. And to, uh, you don't know, to, de- to express or act out whatever is there sometimes not helpful, particularly when there's reactivity. Because you'd just be expressing compulsive aversion or compulsive grasping. And that's not helpful. Yeah. Okay, I think, I think we should finish up. I'm, now that we've worked all this out, <laughs> everyone has worked out your thinking. It's, I, I've enjoyed this topic a lot. <coughs> and it's very rich. We've could keep going for a long time with it, and maybe we'll come back in certain ways. also makes me think, I think about four or five years ago, I had a sequence of talks called the Dharma of Difficult People. <laughs> that might be interesting, I think. But I think when I was uh, talking a few weeks ago, people liked the idea of coming back to looking at self and not self. I think that was, is that... But anyway, I'll invite you to stay with this theme in your practice. And it's really ongoing. And so if one of these practices seem to resonate, continue with that. Part of it is just one practice is just tracking the views, the strong opinions, the charge. Just tracking it. Uh, what's, what are the most common views? What views do I get caught in? Where is their fixation? And then the practice of noticing uh, when there is a different view from another person and can I take that as a starting point for a learning process. That's a beautiful practice to do. Every time in the next week or month when you notice a really strongly different view, ask the question, let me just inquire. Why do I feel so strongly about this? Some of it can be reflective. Some of it's more mindful. Why do I feel so strongly about this? Is there actually something I might learn from this other person? Despite the fact that the view is horrendous. You know, or, or something else we might say. <laughs> you know, and then maybe the last practice to consider is when your mind is really quiet, be with a phenomenon like a tree or could be outside in nature or with a glass or with a shirt and see if you can be with that phenomenon in a non-conceptual way, as it were, beneath the level of concepts. That starts getting very interesting also. Beneath the level of concepts, where you're just with, as it were, the rush of what we might call sense data. With the rush of sense data, much like in the way that Pam Weiss was talking about at the, in that uh, reading I gave. You know, to see how concepts are pragmatic tools rather than actual truths and how we sometimes get caught in them and to actually be with experience sometimes where we are non-conceptual in a way, free from the sway of concepts and really being with life in a different way. That's the invitation is to work with one of those practices, one or more. So we'll sit quietly for about another 30 seconds See where your own intentions want to take you.
close by thanking you for your very um, careful and caring attention, which I appreciate very much, for your practice. And we, we end by <clears throat> offering the fruits of our time together to all we meet, to ourselves, and then beyond the boundaries of our own immediate connections, out to all beings. For their benefit, for their healing, for their freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.